First of all, we'd like to acknowledge the traditional custodians of the land on which we live, work and are recording the show. So I am on the land of the Darug and Gundungurra peoples. Holly is on the land of the Ngunnawal people. And we have Katia calling in from Gadigal land, Dahlia calling in from Darkinjung land and Amanda from Gweagal land. Welcome to Somebody You Love or The Sale of Two Titties. I'm Jenna Love. And I'm Holly Hart. And we're experts in disappointing our parents, breaching community guidelines and banging the people who vote against our rights. Smooth, silky and sensual, the owner of Sydney's Sky Sirens, Katia Schwartz, is the hypnotising siren of the sky. This foxy fatale is known for melting her erotic roots with aerial artistry, creating slinky performances that are both provocative and dreamy. As a deaf artist, Katia remembers every count and pattern of the song, the placement of her moves, and relies on vibrations as cues. She says, being deaf is my superpower. Katia has worked in the adult entertainment industry as a professional showgirl, stripper and full-service sex worker for over 14 years. She is a huge advocate for sex workers and publicly discusses her time in the industry to create awareness and reduce stigma. She has set up a discussion panel, Disrobed, and is the producer of sex worker-focused cabaret showcase, Make It Rain. As the owner of Sky Sirens, Katia prioritizes the hiring of sex workers and works towards preserving the history of pole and erotic dance through educating the community and her students about its connection to sex work. Our second mistress of seduction is no stranger to the art of teas. With her bedroom as a wonderland of naughty props and costumes, Dahlia is always ready to pounce on her next victim. Dahlia takes inspiration from the world around her and is particularly moved by all things erotic. She has a love for movement, whether that be on stage, in the bedroom or in the great outdoors. Dahlia has worked in many facets of the industry. She began her career as a stripper and a showgirl, and from there she moved on to erotic massage. She continued to develop her passion for performance at the same time, drawing on her time working in the clubs as a way to carve out her dance style. She has been in and out of the industry for the better part of the last seven years, and she currently works online making fantasies come true for strangers all around the world. So this week's show is available to listen to as usual. And if you have us in your ears, then that's great. But we have also released it as a video with Australian Sign Language. So if you're just listening, then the link to the video will be in the show notes. Um, Unfortunately, I had root canal this morning, which was really poor planning. And my uh, anybody who is lip reading, hopefully it's still clear, but we do have the ASL for you there as well. Isn't ASL different to Auslan? ASL is American? Yes. Sorry, Dahlia. Oh, I'm yeah. so sorry because I thought <laughs> yeah. Australian Sign Language, but do you not? No, condem- Auslan. Oh. Yeah, um, American Sign Language um, was, I think, created first or maybe became more widely known before Auslan so it already had the abbreviation so we say Auslan as an abbreviation of Australian Sign Language. Perfect well now we've all learned so- well I've learned something and hopefully uh, some of our listeners have as well. Katia tell us your origin story how did you get into the sex industry? So I started in the sex industry in 2008. I started off as a stripper. Um, I worked in lots of different strip clubs um, in Sydney and around Australia. Um, After a while, I really, like, I loved the performance factor of stripping. It really, like, that was the thing that I was, like, I was really attracted to. Um, but yeah, I guess like after a while I like was learning pole dancing and, you know, I really connected with performing. So I decided to do Bucks parties. Um, and I was asked to do a few in my uh, club that I was working at. They installed, um, like, a they had like practice time for me. Um, it was, was really cool. And I used to come there during the daytimes and practice all my pole skills. Um, and then I, yeah, just got really good at pole. And then they they asked me to do all these box parties and, um, 
I traveled around Australia doing lots of box parties. Um, so I worked in Sydney, I did Melbourne, I went up to Cairns, um, lots of um, areas in Queensland. Um, I also did like rural rural areas like um, in Darwin um, and I stripped in um, basically like tin sheds, <laughs> which was cool. <laughs> Definitely like a very um, different experience to regular strip clubs. After that, um, I did, I sort of, uh, my hearing was like declining a little bit um, and I found like the, the club environment a little bit harder um, to sort of manage. Um, so I started doing like a lot of private um, escorting work um, and I didn't do heaps of it. Um, I just did it with like a few kind of like trusted clients um, that I had like from the stripping industry and that's sort of how I found people. Um, and yeah, then I started to sort of really lose my hearing and that was when like club environments were just like not possible anymore. Um, and I got into, um, uh, full service sex work, like in, um, massage parlors. So, um, I now, that's what I currently do at the moment. So I work, um, with, yeah, like, um, basically massage clients um and then they will pay extra to do um additional services um yeah and i really enjoy it i feel like that's probably like the my favorite area of the sex industry that i've worked in so far uh and dahlia tell us your story it's a little bit similar to Cardia's, um, except I didn't travel all around the country for Bucks parties. I started in 2014 in strip clubs after um, I think I was 21 and I'd been thinking about it for a while. I actually have memories back to when I was 16 saying to one of my best friends, like, I want to be an escort when I grow up. Um, so I've always been drawn to that industry. Uh, so, yeah, I started off in the strip clubs and I did that for a few years and really enjoyed it. I think I've worked in every club in Sydney and each one had a different vibe and style. And I liked um, that it was kind of like high energy and kept me on my feet. And from there, I got a lot of private jobs as well, doing topless waitressing, nude waitressing, just clients that wanted to book you out to their locations rather than come to the clubs. Um, and then I moved on to massage work and I did that for a couple of years. Um, I had a break because I had a bit of a burnout from the industry. Um, that might be an understatement as well. I had a big burnout, uh, but I kept, um, performing and dancing, especially like with Cardia at the studio and doing doubles performances. Cause that was kind of our thing when we were both in the clubs at the same time. And now I work online and I really enjoy that too. Um, I think it's really fun and it's a little bit mysterious and it's um, like lots of fantasy and I love to, I do love to spin a good fantasy. So yeah, that's been really good. Yeah, cool. So you've, you've covered quite a few areas in the industry. <laughs> yeah, jack of all trades. Yeah. <laughs> I think we all are a little bit. <laughs> um. Could either of you or both of you talk about what is similar or different about the world of stripping or working in a strip club versus working in a brothel? There's obviously a lot of similarities between um, the different areas of sex work. I um, have worked in pretty much everywhere, so I've been able to see um, like a very distinct difference between the two different environments but also similarities as well i i guess the similarities would be like a lot of the talk in the change room i think like um the camaraderie that happens in strip clubs is quite similar to brothels um and i think that like at the end of the day like all sex workers are the same <laughs> like you know we all talk about the clients like we we all um you know, like to debrief, like about all of our different um, customers that we've had and just our nights and our lives and stuff in general. So I feel like that's um, definitely a massive similarity. <laughs> um, I guess like in terms of differences, I, I, the thing that I find like really different, like for me personally, um, working in, um, massage um, and full service work is the dynamic between myself and the customer. Um, I find 
when I was working as a stripper, it was often like environments where I was the naked one. Um, and I was the one, like when a person's naked, like they're essentially vulnerable. Um, and the customer was fully clothed. Um, and now that I work in massage, the, um, you know, you're both completely naked. So there's like a sense of like equality there. And like the, um, dynamic is very, um, just, yeah, like equal and balanced and it doesn't feel like, um, and both people are there, you know, feeling vulnerable, like about our bodies and like about the experience. And that's, I think something that I really enjoy, um, because, I like to feel like I'm on the same sort of like level with somebody rather than, um, yeah, just feeling like there's that division. Um, I think sort of in stripping, I felt a little bit more like objectified, um, because I was sort of like on show, whereas like, mm, yeah, in full service work, it's more, um, yeah, like I feel like in full service work, it's definitely more, um, like you have more of like an intimate, uh, like, a relationship with the client it's more like you're both like enjoying the experience together rather than it being two completely different perspectives yeah <laughs> that's really interesting I uh it makes a lot of sense and I wouldn't have thought about it so yeah I think the work in a strip club I think is can be a lot more physically demanding just like walking around all night in your high heels, which are usually seven to eight inches and doing stage shows and depending on the club you work at and how many girls there are on in a night uh, that you could be doing one show every hour, you know, which is quite a lot. Um, There's also a lot, it's a lot different with like objection handling with customers because you're dealing with people who are drunk and on other substances sometimes as well, whereas it's not as common in brothels. People have been drinking, of course, especially if it's been at night, but most places don't offer alcohol or if they do, it's kind of like a complimentary glass on arrival and it's expected that you kind of have your wits about you at the brothel, whereas at the strip club you're trying to actually get them to drink more so that they spend more. Um, And then in terms of that like having impacts on your health as well. I definitely used to drink a lot more when I was a stripper and I basically don't drink at all since then. Uh, So I think those are like really big differences that I found just, yeah, having um, the impact that it has on your body um, just night by night, the work that you're doing, but also long-term, like what you're consuming. You're also spending a lot of energy and not really eating much and stuff like that. So I definitely think that um, that's a huge thing with stripping versus massage work. Yeah. Um, and have you experienced much, I, I didn't write this question down, sorry, um, but I was speaking to Katia about it the other day. Have you experienced much in terms of the hierarchy? So where, you know, stripping people that, that do stripping, having an issue with full service or vice versa? Mm-hmm. Definitely. Um, I definitely was one of those people that was like, um, I was like, I'm a stripper. I don't do that. And then, then I did that and I was like, oh, (laughs) this is so much, this is so much better than, in my opinion, I was like, this is so much better than the other work. Um, Or even in more subtle ways, um, it would come out like, you know, when we're chatting to each other in the back room and be like, oh, another guy asked me for a hand job. Like, oh, if you want that, why don't you just go see someone at a massage parlor or something? And there was that kind of really um, kind of subtle, but still very much implied that there was a hierarchy of like West strippers, we don't do that. Or like they do this, there's a time and a place for that and it's not here kind of thing. Whereas I think if I went back to stripping now, I'd probably be one of those people doing that in the back room. I wouldn't really care anymore. Yeah, I totally agree, Dee. I feel like I think back when we were dancing as well, which was like quite a long time ago now, like I started dancing 14 years ago and back then um, there was a lot of stigma for um, Mm. sex workers in general and um, stripping was definitely like the least stigmatised sex work that you could do because actually online work wasn't really a thing. You know, so stripping was definitely the... um, most palatable form of sex work um and 
even I remember like in the clubs, like I used to do extra services in the club, not nothing like or even remotely like even comparable to what I do now. <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, I look back and I'm like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I thought that was very taboo. But it, yeah. Yeah. anyway, but I remember I like, um, actually it was like a, a dance with you, Dee, like we did it together. I don't know if you remember mm. this actually. Um, Maybe, but we'll see. <laughs> it was that customer with that really disgusting breath. Um, oh yeah and, and he kept going on our nipples and like the yes and it was like the train of the nipple anyway, so it was the like, nipple train. we all had to like stand <laughs> yes it was like we all had to stand kind of there was about four of us or something like in this private show and his customer just would like like a little baby just like take turns on just like sucking each of our nipples oh. um and her and I were just sort of standing there. We were like, oh, like kind of like dying <laughs> because yeah. it was so gross. Because my boobs like smelt like breath afterwards. Like it was disgusting. Mm. Um, anyway, like it, it, we, we did that. And um, I remember like we got heaps of money for it. Okay. Like, and I was actually fine with it. Like I didn't really feel like it was, I just didn't like the breath. Mm. Like the actual mm. act of it was, it was a bit odd, but it was fine. Like I was just like, oh, okay. whatever. I like, you know, the dude wants to do that. That's fine. But I remember telling another girl, and I think I remember telling you this, Dee, and we were like, we were kind of talking about it afterwards. And I said to her, she was a stripper. And I said to her, I said, oh, like, this is what I did. Like, and I was really excited about it. I was like, yeah, like, you know, I like got, I forget how much money it was, but I made all of this extra money last night. And she was like, oh my God, I can't believe that you let a customer do that to you. That is so disgusting. And like, this is another like stripper, like we're talking about, like, this isn't some random civilian person. Like this is somebody mm. who like literally grinds on guys laps as her job. And she's telling me that like, you know, another part of something that I do is disgusting because she doesn't feel comfortable doing it like it's just mm. and that kind of really hit me and I felt a lot of shame about like that um particular booking um for a really long time and I think sometimes like the effects that um the horaki has is often more um impactful when it comes from this like other sex workers like I find it you know, it's almost like, um, especially at the time, because at the time, like it was such a long time ago and, um, you know, it was, yeah, definitely, you know, like not how it is now. And also like I, once I accidentally had sex with a customer, like, and I, not accidentally, like as oh. in I accidentally prostituted myself to a customer. Like I wanted to do it for free because what? like the customer was hot um, <laughs> but I actually didn't realize that he thought that it was a transactional experience oh, oh no um so <laughs> like at the end of the experience I got lots of money like he just put it in my bag and I was like oh I was like cool and I was like I didn't expect I was like I didn't tell him I was like oh fuck that I'm gonna take the money like yeah as if like um and then yeah and then I went back for more the next day so like <laughs> even back then it was like you know like that experience like I was that was like kind of the first time I had done any kind of full service work and I actually just fell into it like I kind of <laughs> yeah. was just like it, like I accidentally got paid <laughs> so that was like my very first ever like <laughs> booking <laughs> it was like accidental prostitution <laughs> and I was like and I said to like my um my friends I was like so, say for example, you have sex with a guy, and like, then you, and then, then there's for some all this money you pays you in money. your bag. Is that really whoring? Is it really? <laughs> and everyone's like, yes. And even <laughs> oh, it's actually fine. <laughs> even then, you were trying to be like, but is it because that hierarchy structure was still like so strong? I feel like it doesn't count. Because you didn't know oh, that's what you were doing. It yeah, does. I don't think. Well, the fact that you took <laughs> the money afterwards, yeah. I guess. But it's in a grey area. Yeah, it's in a yeah. grey area. Yeah. <laughs> I have another thought to share about the horaki before mm, we move on, yeah. if that's okay. Mm, please. Um, something that I learned about the horaki as time went on, and especially 
I think I processed a lot of it when I had my break as well from sex work is um, like how a lot of it is really focused around genitals and what you do with the genitals. So it's like touching is different to like mouthing is different to like having genitals inside you or on you or like which genital or, you know, um, and it's really interesting because I have, I identify as queer. I've always been queer since I, like I've always known I was queer. I've been out and have dated queerly my whole life. And so I don't really believe that in my personal life, but it's interesting how that really runs very deep or it did, uh, maybe not so much these days, but it did run very deeply in the industry. It's like, it went literally on a ladder of like, I wouldn't let them touch me versus I would let them touch me, but not have my mouth, their mouth on my nipples or like their Mm. mouth on my nipples, but not their hand down my pants kind of thing. And it like, it's really staggered, like based on genitals and what you're doing with them. Whereas now I think at least me and Cardia understand that like touch is touch and intimacy is intimacy. And that's what you're selling at the end of the day, because, you know, you could sell, three hours with a guy at the strip club and like sit on his lap and stroke his hair and talk to him and be really affectionate and intimate. And that might be harder work than doing like, Mm -hmm. you know, a full service booking for 45 minutes where they touch all your holes, but they don't really connect with you on a deeper level. And so, yeah, that's, that's something that I learned on my journey. I agree with you as well with regards to that, but also like from like I from a queer perspective, like I understand because I'm I'm also queer, but also from like a disability perspective, I find like, you know, the um penis in vagina like situation is like the definition of sex um very mm-hmm. limiting, like for mm-hmm. clients who have disabilities, um and just for people with disabilities in general. Because like I've had a lot of customers who have had um, you know, like physical disabilities who haven't been able to have like um penetrative uh penetrative sex. Um, Mm -hmm. But they have like other, you know, erotic zones in their body. And just because like it's not, you know, penis in vagina sex or like, you know, to do with like genital um, doesn't mean that like that person is not like having a sexual experience. And I actually think it's like quite ableist like view of, um, you know, of sex to actually like reduce it to, um, you know, like literally just some stuff to do with genitals like I think it's just very yeah like very limiting and um definitely not like what sex should be um and that's Mm -hmm. why I think that like the hierarchy is just like absolute bullshit because like you know the um it's like we're all selling like a sexual experience like we're all selling like intimacy like no matter what part of like the sex industry you're in like it's all one and the same it's just different people have different kind of ways of yeah experiencing sex and as sex workers we're there to provide like whatever service that kind of is who misses free and affordable ads without all the anti-sex rhetoric Assembly 4 is a team of sex workers and technologists based out of NAM, Australia, who have a specialised understanding of the complex challenges workers face and are dedicated to providing solutions to amplify their voices. Assembly 4 was founded on the belief that impact is more important than profit. They strongly believe that having the ability to make decisions about our bodies and sexual lives is a fundamental human right. Anyone should be able to make these choices without fear, violence or discrimination. Sex workers are still fighting for this right. Trist.link is a directory that lists thousands of independent adult entertainers, escorts, BDSM, kink, video, massage and much more. They also have a huge amount of educational resources and blog posts about the sex industry that are well worth a look. Check out their website assembly4.com. That's for the word, not the number, for more info. So uh, moving on to talking about disability. Thank you for the segue, Katya. Um, so we noticed when we were preparing for this recording and I was talking a little bit with you back and forth that you capitalized the D in the word deaf. Um, can you explain why that is? And, and I guess the question is, is that something that you would like for hearing people to adopt as well? I will answer this um, question in Auslan just for a little bit of a mix up since it's connected to deafness. Yeah. Great. 
So in the deaf world and in the deaf community, there are a lot of different uh, identities that fall under that umbrella of being deaf. So not all people are identified necessarily as one type of deaf. So for example, I identify as capital D deaf. And capital D deaf for me denotes uh, a cultural deafness, not just a physical deafness. So it means things like we use Auslan, we socialise with other deaf people, we're involved in the deaf community and its culture. Lots of capital D deaf people uh, have a lot of pride in their identity as a deaf person. It's not a shameful thing for them or for us. So yeah, that's that's one of the identities that's um, a very strong identity for myself. Uh, another way that some people might identify as deaf is little d deaf. And basically people with that sort of deafness or who might identify as that don't generally have a connection to the capital D deaf community, to the cultural community. My grandmother, for example, um, I would call her deaf with a little d because she wasn't involved in the culture. She didn't use the sign language. She didn't have any involvement in the deaf community. So my grandmother was profoundly deaf as well, but would still identify as, as little d deaf. So yeah, that's two different ways of identifying as deaf within the community. There's another one as well, hard of hearing. So some people might identify as hard of hearing or they might call me hard of hearing, for example. So I can speak. A lot of the people um, in the deaf community who can speak sort of identify themselves as hard of hearing. I can also hear like I have hearing aids. So um, I'm still profoundly deaf, um, which is why I identify as like deaf with a capital D because I do know Auslan, I am involved like in the deaf community. And I also like to sort of challenge like what people's idea of deafness is. And that's why I don't um, identify as hard of hearing anymore because I think that there's like such a diverse range of deafness and just because like I can speak and I can hear with my hearing aids a little bit doesn't make me any less deaf than somebody who like who doesn't who, who doesn't speak so that's why I like to use that label and another way fourth way of uh, is people who describe themselves as hearing impaired and so that's a very medical perspective of disability and very medical perspective of deafness. It's, it's a very, it used very much medical community and it's sort of the way doctors and nurses sort of give that label to people who have lost their hearing. So they're often called hearing impaired. Some deaf people uh, may choose that label as well. They might choose to call themselves hearing impaired uh, because they don't feel like they're connected to the deaf community culturally and they sort of want to perhaps distance themselves a little bit from that. They don't want to be seen as people who sign or something like that. So, yeah, so like I personally used to label myself as like hearing impaired, but I decided that I like as I sort of got into into the deaf community a little bit more, I don't like that label as much because I found that like I don't know it just like um connects to like a very like um dark kind of like place in in my life like I when I first um had like got my hearing loss diagnosis I was 18 and I was um I only was deaf in one ear and it didn't really affect my life that much when I was about 25 I started going deaf in my other ear and that's kind of when it hit me a little bit and um like my medical diagnosis was like hearing impaired. Um, so that's kind of what I referred to myself as. Like I know even D like um, with you, like I just, when I first met you, I was just like, oh, I can't hear a bit well. Like I was like, I, my <laughs> hearing is like a bit bad. <laughs> that's like what I would. When we met in 2014, when we were working a civilian job together, you just said to me, oh, can you just stand on this side? I can't hear really well on that side. And I was like, yeah, Okay. We didn't even, we just kind of talked around it. We didn't even really use a label. Yeah, like I didn't even identify at all like with being deaf. Like deaf like was not even like a word that was in my brain. Like I was literally just like can't hear. Like <laughs> Doesn't work. This one works. <laughs> then the next kind of process I was like, oh, okay, I'm hearing impaired. But the thing that I guess like when I started learning Auslan, like the sign for hearing um, impaired is like hearing and then impaired. But this actually means like fault mm. or like faulty um, or like you're at fault okay. kind of thing, like whose fault is that? That's the sign. And, yeah, when I kind of like realised that, it like had a bit of like a light bulb moment for me because I was like, oh, like 
I don't really like like kind of describing myself as like faulty. Like I don't, I really hate that. Like that makes me feel like shit about myself. Yeah, that's why I don't really like that label personally for me. There are like people in the like hard of hearing community and also like the deaf community who um, do identify themselves as um, hearing impaired. Hard of hearing is more of like, like if, if you don't say deaf, like hard of hearing is the kind of more politically correct um, way of um, like introducing people. Most people like are not offended if you say hard of hearing, but like some people would be offended if you said um, hearing impaired. Yeah. Um, yeah, so it's just like a bit of a label thing. The best like way uh, to sort of move forward with that is if just ask the deaf person, like what is your label? What do you prefer to be identified as? And generally like they'll be very, um, usually deaf people are very blunt. They'll just be like, I'm this. <laughs> like it's actually a thing in deaf culture. It's like called deaf blunt. It's like a... Huh. Yeah, it's like a cultural, um, like, significant thing. Yeah. Probably. We all basically just tell the truth because our language is very, like, yes. matter of fact. Yeah. <laughs> it's no fluff. <laughs> I was speaking to someone just the other day and I said, oh, I met a deaf sex worker the other day um, because I had met Katya. They said to me, oh, um, I think you're supposed to say hearing impaired, like deaf's offensive. And I was like, oh, actually, I think hearing impaired's offensive. And I was like, I don't know. <laughs> so anyway, the lesson is you ask and that applies to so many different things, doesn't it? How have clients reacted to you being deaf? I've had like some positive experiences and some like negative experiences. There's definitely very, they're all very mixed. Generally, I don't tell people that I'm deaf. Um, I feel like I'm very like passable as a hearing person. Sometimes like I can sound a little bit funny. If I don't have my hearing aids on, I sound like quite deaf. I've got my hearing aids on at the moment. So I sound sort of, um, I hopefully, I, do I sound do. okay? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> when, I, when I can hear myself, I can, I'm pretty good. But when I can, when I take my hearing aids off, I sometimes slur my words a little bit, but I always have my hearing aids on at work. Um, so I tend to not um, tell them. I have it written in my bio, like on the brothel website, like it's in my bio just in case. I don't want a client to like book me and not be okay with it. Like if I, if it does come up in the room, whereas like if I just don't mention it, like when in like a meet, then it sort of feels a bit, you know, it's fine. Like they've met me kind of thing. But then, yeah, I, I feel like it's one of those things where I'm like, oh, I kind of have to tell them, but like, do I? And if, if their head is like down on the massage table, sometimes like they're talking shit and I can't hear them and I, I have to be like, oh, there's a reason for that. I'm not just being rude. Um, so generally I'll tell them like after I've, they've booked me and after they've paid the money. <laughs> sometimes like clients, I've, I had like, I have a really like lovely client. Um, he booked me um, from the website and it said there that I, I was deaf and he had never met me before. And he came into the parlor and he actually like learned some Auslan, like, cause he thought that like, I couldn't speak yeah. at all. <laughs> and um, he went to like the effort of like, you know, learning a bit of Auslan. It was really sweet. Like it was so nice. It was actually, no one has done that for me before. Like it was really, really lovely. And he just like learned like basic, like silly things, like um, not silly like swear words. I love you. You're beautiful. <laughs> like, <laughs> like <Cute>. just stuff <laughs> like that. <laughs> so like I had that, like that was a really nice experience. And he was really confused like when he met me because he was like, what? Like you can speak? Like I learned all that awesome for nothing. <laughs> and I was like, no, it wasn't for nothing. Like, you know, it actually really touched me that you learned that. Like actually like you are some random client who has like respected me more than like some of my friends who I've known for years who haven't learned Auslan, you know? So thank you. Like that's, you know, that's really lovely. He, he's a regular of mine, so he sees me all the time and I, I teach him a little bit of cool. Auslan every now and again and it's really sweet. But, yeah, I've had a lot of other clients who haven't, I don't know, like been okay with the deafness. Like usually they'll, um, I'll, in a meet, I'll talk, like I'll speak like this. Sometimes they'll notice something funny about my voice and they'll say something. Sometimes they think I have maybe like a speech impairment. Other times, like I've had people think I'm like intellectually disabled. I've had people tell me that I um, don't know how to speak English which is weird <laughs> but like you know all your parents didn't teach you how to speak English either sometimes like in COVID like they'll be wearing a mask so I have to kind of tell them to pull the mask down those clients generally will never book me so I found like a massive like 
lull in COVID where I didn't get a lot of bookings because I had to continuously tell people to pull their masks down. Uh, at first I was telling them because I was deaf, um, but then they felt sorry for me and like they wouldn't book me. Like it was kind of just this like look on their face, mm. like where I go all the time, you know, like I'll go to a shop and I'll have, and that, like I'll have to tell someone, oh, move your mask. And then it'll be like a reaction of like, like they have no idea what to do kind of thing. Like it, it's this shock. Yeah. Or like, oh, you're different. Or for some reason now, even though like you've, I've treated you normally up until this very point, now I'm no longer going to treat you normally because like I know something about you and I'm now really confused, you know, and it's like, and that's a lot of clients just can't be bothered to like deal with that um, aspect of me. Like they're like, I, I can't be bothered to like um, learn how to communicate with this person. Like it's too hard to um know how you know like even though like I am I'm actually really capable like I I can speak like really well and like I can um handle myself with my hearing aids like really well like I I really can integrate very easily in the hearing community like I have done that my entire life and like literally so is every other deaf person like but people just get really like weirded out or something like they just don't understand they don't know how to treat you like they're just like what and it was actually really hurtful like every single time like I had a customer like I would just like walk back into the room and I just say to the other girls like oh he's not gonna book me like oh I'm not gonna get booked you know and then eventually I sort of found like a bit of like a way around it and I would say oh can you take your mask down I really want to see your beautiful face but then some people would move it back up again after I saw their face Mm. Some people didn't and then, you know, like I could sort of trick them that way. It's like it's definitely a challenge like um, in that environment being like somebody who has, yeah, like something different about you. I I find, yeah, it does work to my advantage sometimes. I tend to pick and choose who I want to tell. Like, for example, if a client has a disability, I will straight away tell them that I'm deaf and I'll get booked straight away. Like I had a client actually who had a facial difference and part of his like facial difference was that he doesn't have any ears. Um, and like, we really connected, um, because like he was also, he, his hearing aids, like, um, that he wore was sort of in in, like almost like a headband and like, um, like we were kind of really connected because like I said, oh, well, my ears look like normal on the outside, but like on the inside, they're fucked. And he was like, oh, mine's the opposite. He's like, mine are fucked on the outside, but perfectly fine on the inside. Wow. So yeah, I just feel like, you know, clients like that, I, um, I immediately seem like more approachable and it's like a huge advantage because I look very intimidating. Like I've got lots of tattoos and I'm like, I'm very like pinup kind of looking and I'm, I've got like a bit of a fierce look. So as soon as I have like something about me that's like a little bit more, you know, like not normal or like not approach, you know, not um like more approachable, like and more friendly, people will will book me. So yeah, I, it's it's one of those things where it's like most people don't like it, but then like the ones that do, I make like a really huge and like positive impact on. So it's like, yeah. <laughs> and it just goes to show that like people discriminate against deaf people. <laughs> Like it's it's like literally I was like, oh, I'm doing like a social experiment. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, you know, and I know like it's like I am extremely hot, okay? Like it is, like I walk in there and I'm like, I know that it is, has nothing to do with my appearance. I am smoking. <laughs> and I'm really good at my job as well. Like I'm I'm not like a I'm not a um inexperienced sex worker. Like I've been in the industry for a really long time. Like I know that like my mates are not going badly because of anything that I'm doing. Like it's literally because of the fact that I and I notice I'm like, oh, he's not gonna like he's he he um told him to take his mask off. He's not gonna come. Also, like clients, they don't like being told like when in the meet, like they're vulnerable. They're like, oh like especially guys who've never been there before who have never seen a sex worker before and they're like sitting there and they're fucking nervous and they're like, ah, shit. Like, you know, and then some girl comes out and goes, take off your mask. And they're just like, oh my God. Like, and then they have to take it off and they're just freaking out because they're like, I'm exposed. (laughs) (laughs) Like, you know, those kind of guys, like they just, they don't even like, they're so in their head sometimes, like it may not even really be to do with me. Like they're kind of just like, my God, she told me to like do something. Oh my God. And like, they don't even remember me because like I embarrassed them or something because I had to do something. Well, there's already all of the stigma and discrimination going on for sex work and for them thinking about themselves walking into a brothel. And then you add the layer of disability stigma and discrimination on top of that. And it's, it's just too much for them, I guess. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) 
Have you checked out the Somebody You Love Patreon yet? For just $3 a month, you can get every episode without ads and you get them a day early. For $6 a month, you get all of our bloopers and behind-the-scenes action. For $10 a month, you get monthly bonus episodes. And for $20 a month, you also get the bonus episodes as videos. You can cancel anytime, and when you sign up, you get access to everything that we've posted so far. We also have annual subscriptions where you save 10% and get one month free. Patreon.com slash somebodyyoupod, as in podcast. You do have to type in the URL because Patreon hides 18 plus creators from the search, so you most likely won't be able to find us by searching. That's patreon.com slash somebodyyoupod. So, Dahlia, you're not deaf. No. But you are involved in the community. I'm also a qualified interpreter. So I'm recently qualified. But, yes, usually I'm doing what Amanda's doing. Yeah, a backstory for the listeners is that I asked Katia to come on the show and Katia was like, oh, I'll get, um, you know, Dahlia to interpret for me. And then she started saying, well, also Dahlia's a worker. And then we were like, well, why don't we just have everyone on the show? And so that's how we've ended up here. Um, so thank you, both of you, all of you oh, thank for being you. here. <laughs> um, would you say, have you found the deaf community to be accepting of the sex industry? I think people... Being deaf does hasn't, in my perspective, hasn't really had an impact on how much they accept or don't accept it. I think the questions you get asked are just a lot more direct and forward, as Kat touched on, like the deaf bluntness before. I don't. I think there are some people that like it and some people that don't, in the same as yeah. other communities. Yeah, I feel like sometimes like deaf people. I think like any type of like community can sometimes be like more accepting um, than like like any kind of minority group can be more accepting than, you know, like the majority, you know, like I know like people in the disabled community, you know, outside of being deaf or people in the queer community or people in the deaf community, like we are all all used to people kind of discriminating against us. Like we, so when like I tell people that like I'm a sex worker, it's not really they're less I think they're less likely to you know say something but it's it it is very like because also like I guess with the deaf community like they are very like insular because they don't have like a lot of access to um the same information and like that that are hearing people have access to so often like with um political views and things like that um they can be um not always like not with everyone but a little bit behind like the eight ball because they literally don't have the same level of access to all of the stuff that we get every day um if you're a hearing person you know like like for example on me like I have um my social media okay and like I'll go through Instagram and I'll be scrolling and like I can't um access like half the content that's like on my social media it's just a lot of stuff just doesn't have captions a lot of like really important stuff doesn't have captions like a lot of like news stuff doesn't have mm. captions or Auslan interpreters. So it's like you can't really like blame people for not mm. being, yeah, like accepting of certain issues or even understanding certain things because like they literally just they can't get access to it. Like they, you know, like even, um, you know, some interviews that I've done and stuff like uh, where I'm explaining things like to, um, you know, the, the like uh, to like a hearing community, like deaf people may not be able to access that. Yeah. So it's like, yeah, I feel like there is like a lot of privilege like involved. So it's a bit like you, usually the deaf people that like I've told are just like, oh, okay, like what's that? Yeah. <laughs> They're literally just like, oh, like what are you doing? Yeah. Wait, what? <laughs> I think like deaf people can be more curious because of that, what you've just talked about, that um, less exposure yes, to information. Can, they can be quicker to be like, oh, yeah, okay, but then they'll have like 10 times as many questions. Yeah, yeah. And it's just a cur- it's a curiosity. It's like, oh, I've never heard of this thing. Like what is what what is it? What do you do? Yeah, so there's kind of like swings and roundabouts. Yeah, I think also like um, like with, with people in the deaf community, like they, uh, they don't actually have the opportunity a lot of the time to like actually have a conversation with somebody from – who outside of the deaf community, yeah. <laughs> like, cause there's always like, nobody knows Auslan. 
So it's like you have to use an interpreter to actually have a conversation. So sometimes like when they meet me who like knows Ozan, who's like a fellow deaf person, they're like, well, this is like an opportunity yeah. to like ask a whole bunch of questions, you know, because they literally have like never met anybody uh, with my job. Like they literally like have not had that opportunity. Um, and it's because like hearing people don't like make an effort to talk to them. I just also um, wanted to point out and pull me up if I'm wrong here, uh, if I say anything that's not 100% correct, but my understanding or what I've been taught about um, the deaf community is that it's quite a small proportion of the deaf community who actually have learnt to read English or to, to, to understand it that way, that most of the deaf community, particularly who was born deaf, speaks Auslan and that's the language that they learn so when accessing things like social media where things are written just in for example English or just you know in that sort of language it's a lot less accessible for the deaf community is that correct? I'd say that what you said about social media being less accessible is right but I don't think it's a small portion of the deaf community that know English I think there's like there are definitely people who don't know any English at all and there are people who are fluent and bilingual in Auslan and English and then most people yeah sit like somewhere in the middle with varying levels of fluency yeah but I would say most deaf people that we know and have met have an understanding of English it might just be at different like fluency levels so just like meeting people from overseas you know I would say, like, I haven't actually met a deaf person that, like, does not know English. Like, I've, I've met a lot of deaf people. Like, It happens, but it's rare. Yeah, like, their English might be not great. Like, their spelling and stuff might be, like, you know, it might look like they, um, you know, have learned English as, like, a second language, like, uh, just like, a, a not, like another person who's, like, a non-English speaking background kind of thing. Um, it might look a bit like that. But, no, I would definitely say, like, all deaf people, because Auslan sort of is a little bit like English in some ways, like, you know, like the mouth patterns and everything. Like it's it's more that like they can't, like they don't, the, the reason why they don't have access to things is that it's it's more like the, the fact that not because they don't understand like the English language, but because like things are not made accessible to them. Like, um, you know, ca- uh, like having things having captions or there being like Auslan interpreters and stuff like that. Like, so it's... Yeah, like if it was like all written down, like generally they would be able to understand. Some deaf people who sort of grew up with like um, deaf parents or Mm -hmm. like who are more involved in Auslan would find big, massive uh, chunks of text quite difficult to understand, like and comprehend fully. But I just, yeah, I haven't met it. Like because when I first started um, learning Auslan, like I didn't know any, like I didn't, I because I learned as like in my my mid-20s, like I didn't know Auslan before that and I had to kind of communicate with deaf people like as if I was a hearing person even though I couldn't really hear as well so I've had like I've been kind of like on both sides yeah and like we are very like um perceptive like to people's um body language and um just certain things like visually around us I feel like at the beginning I didn't really have that like I felt like I kept getting like almost hit by cars because like (laughs) I was like used to the sensation of like hearing the car coming because I've grown up hearing the car, you know, and that being my warning for danger. But now I feel like I don't almost die all the time because my eyes are a little (laughs) bit more alert. Not not dying is good. Yes. Um, (laughs) I I feel like we should say when we say things like uh, something like most deaf people can speak English, that's dependent on globally, like if they live in an English-speaking country, right? I mean, we're talking about most deaf people, you know, maybe can speak a spoken language, not necessarily English. Yes. Yeah, well, like every country has their own sign language yeah. as well. But like I mean, I was talking about like Australia, Australia. Of course, yeah. yeah. Um, or yeah. like, you know. And the um, deaf people other, we know here. Like yeah. English-speaking. Yes, yeah. Tell us about Sky Sirens and Make It Rain. Make It Rain has been a project three years in the work. Uh, Two of those years were stolen by COVID. And it all started because Kat Kat and I went to brunch, which we do a lot. (laughs) And we were having, I just remember that we were at Flower and Stone in Woolloomooloo and we were having bunny eggs and soldiers and Kat was like 
so I want to talk to you about something. And I was like, shit. <laughs> and then she was like, no, no, I, um, I had an idea and I think we should um, tell our story because we have a really good story to tell. And I think we should tell it about how we started, how we stripped and how we became like best friends and the things that we learned in the industry. And I was like, okay, amazing. And this is kind of how mine and Cardia's friendship goes. And we actually also have a running joke that like Kat um, kind of like conceives the baby and then I help her like carry it to full term. So I'm like the surrogate and um, Kat provides all of everything else. Does that mean I'm the sperm? Well, you're kind of all of the DNA and I'm like the incubator. (laughs) (laughs) And we have like, it's a running joke. And like at every photo shoot that we have together, there's always like a maternity shot where like cats (laughs) holding my belly and everything, because that's how it happened with Sky Sirens. And then with the events that Kat wanted to put on like Heartstoppers and Glory Box and Disrobed. And then when she was like, I want to expand the studio and then I want to renovate the studio. (laughs) So Make It Rain was the next baby. Yeah, because Kat has all these like amazing creative ideas and I'm very logistical and procedure based. And so we work really well as a team. So we started writing this show and, you know, we just kind of like brainstormed all of the things that you know, really stood out to us at, in our time at strip clubs. And that was the original form of Make It Rain. So Make It Rain has evolved since then. Originally, it was quite comical and very cheesy and only like focused on stripping. Um, it was still educational and it was, you know, still aimed to reduce stigma. But since then, it's evolved to encapsulate more of the sex work industry. We're trying to touch on all parts of it and just really highlight the common themes um it's still about camaraderie it's still about being like sexy and glamorous and sensual um it's all about like eroticism and we've also included the interview portion as you know Jenna you um interviewed for that and it's like a much more like glamorous production now which is really exciting um and you know since then Kat has we've both been but especially Kat has been like on a journey with like her deafness and disability and stuff so we've incorporated like kind of all of that into it and so uh when and where is it it's going to be at the vanguard on july 7th 8th and 9th i actually checked yesterday and it looks like july 9th um the saturday night ticket exhaustion uh, (laughs) saturday 9th of july all the tickets seem to be sold out. I think that's what it said on the website. Friday is selling fast and Thursday still has a few left. Um, so this episode will most likely be coming out on the Thursday. Come tonight. So if you're listening to this, it's possible that there won't be any tickets. But <laughs> Yeah. So three nights at the Vanguard in Newtown, which is like we've never had a three-night show before. <laughs> Yeah, this oh, is cool. really cool. Nice. Um, yeah, so about oh. 300 people can watch it total, which is exciting. And then hopefully we will also immortalize awesome. it for um, online viewing as well. Thank you to Katia, Dahlia and Amanda for being here with us today. Um, I've learned a whole bunch of things and I imagine our listeners have as well. And I'm really looking forward to going to Make It Rain. Yay, I can't wait to see you there. <laughs> Thank you, guys. Thank you so Thank you. much. Please look out for us on Twitter, Instagram, Facebook, and Patreon. Our name everywhere is Somebody You Pod, as in podcast. Our Patreon starts at just $3 a month, and you can get all of our episodes ad-free and a day early, plus bonus episodes, behind-the-scenes action, bloopers, and more. Thank you for taking the time to listen to the voices of sex workers. And remember, somebody you love might just be a sex worker.